In the Heidelberg Catechism this morning, we consider Lord's Day 31. Lord's Day 31, questions and answers 83, 84, and 85 on page 18 in the back of the Psalter. We'll read that Lord's Day at this time. Lord's Day 31. Question 83, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? And the answer, the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut against unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the, gospel, of the Holy Gospel? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, it is declared and publicly testified to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And on the contrary, when it is declared and testified to all unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent, that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation, so long as they are unconverted, according to which testimony of the gospel God will judge them both in this and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven shut and opened by Christian discipline? Thus, when according to the command of Christ, those who under the name of Christians maintain doctrines or practices inconsistent therewith and will not, after having been brotherly admonished, often brotherly admonished, renounce their errors and wicked course of life, are complained of to the church or to those who are thereto appointed by the church, and if they despise their admonition, are by them forbidden the use of the sacraments, whereby they are excluded from the Christian church and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ, and when they promise and show real amendment, are again received as members of Christ and his church." It's in connection with that that we read this morning from the Gospel of John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. This is uh, Jesus' appearance to his disciples after his resurrection, the first Sunday in the evening. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my fingers into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. 
Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they which have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And we read that passage, especially because of verse 23, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained, which is the same language that Jesus uses in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 in connection with the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You all know the importance of keys. It's good to know where your keys are. It's good to be able to find them when you need them. We use keys for a number of different reasons. Most often keys are used for protection, and that can be protection of goods or it can be protection of persons. One of the things that we saw in Mexico were many walls around the different properties, and that was explained to us this way. Mexico is a magical city where things disappear, and so we need locks and keys. We also use keys for opening doors to let people in and for closing doors to keep people out. And having keys and having access to something with keys is a great privilege. So your boss entrusts you with keys for the business or your dad throws you the keys for his car and that's great privilege. The Bible uses the illustration of keys in reference to the kingdom of heaven. We're not going to this morning say very much about the kingdom of heaven. That is developed in other places in the catechism. Christ is the king, prophet, priest, and king, and his kingdom is developed there. And we pray, thy kingdom come. And again, that whole idea of the kingdom is developed there. But we simply want to understand this as we begin to talk about keys this morning that the kingdom is spiritual, not earthly. And it refers to the spiritual rule of Jesus Christ in the hearts of believers. And that kingdom comes to expression in the local visible church. But even though it does, the keys are not first physical, but spiritual. And they're about the spiritual care of the members. As we talk about the keys of the kingdom of heaven, we're talking not so much about the kingdom itself, but entering, entering into that kingdom. And what a privilege it is for us to have entrance into the kingdom, that the door of the kingdom is opened by Jesus Christ to us. That's the good news of the gospel this morning. By nature, we're children of darkness with no right to come into the kingdom, no right to come under the rule of the grace of Jesus Christ or to receive the Holy Spirit, but He opens the kingdom. He gives us His Spirit. He gives us hearts to believe. He brings us in repentance to Himself. 
And so the kingdom is open to us. That's our great privilege as we consider the kingdom keys. So let's consider this morning the kingdom keys. Notice first with me what they are. Second, to whom they are entrusted. And then third, what are they saying to you this morning? There's only one way into the kingdom of heaven. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. By me, if any enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The way of entrance into the kingdom is Jesus Christ. He is the door. And the door is the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. And entrance is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And Christ has the keys or the keychain for entrance into that kingdom. The keys that will open and will close the door of that kingdom. And those keys are the preaching of the gospel and Christian discipline. The first key and the primary key, we could call it the skeleton key or the master key, is the key of the preaching of the gospel. What the Catechism emphasizes here is not only that the preaching of the gospel is the key, the primary key, but how this key operates. And you notice that, especially in verse question 84, how is the kingdom of heaven opened and shut by the preaching of the holy gospel? The kingdom is opened when it is publicly declared, that is, proclaimed, in the preaching of the gospel to all and every believer that whenever they receive the promise of the gospel by a true faith, all their sins are really forgiven them of God for the sake of Christ's merits. And now you understand two things about entering the kingdom. One is we enter by faith, so it's a spiritual kingdom. And then second, to enter the kingdom is to receive the blessings of salvation, the forgiveness of sins for the sake of the merits of Christ. Not only is the kingdom opened by the preaching, but it's also closed by the kingdom, by the preaching. It's closed when the preaching declares to all unbelievers and such who do not sincerely repent that they stand exposed to the wrath of God and eternal condemnation so long as they are unconverted, that is, so long as they are not turned in repentance from their sin. As we think of preaching as a key, there are three things that this tells us about the preaching of the gospel. First, this tells us something about the content of the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is, we could say, a heaven and hell gospel, a heaven and hell message. It's not only a word of love and forgiveness, but it's also a word of the wrath and the judgment of God against sin. The gospel is not to be presented as something that is grace to all or something that should make all who sit under its preaching feel good about themselves, but it's something that should bring all of us to feel miserably about who we are in ourselves and to be brought to repentance and dependence on Jesus Christ, to look away from ourselves to Christ. That's the gospel message that opens the kingdom. 
It brings sinners to the cross. And this is not just a word against the Arminian preaching of the gospel, which, which preaches a universal love of God, but it means that we who sit under the preaching of the gospel should expect to be confronted and convicted by the gospel so that we're humiliated and exposed before the Word of God. That's the way the gospel should come to you. And then the kingdom door is being opened. Second, this tells us something about who is to be addressed by the preaching of the gospel. And that's very clear in the catechism here. The preaching is not only for believers, so that the preacher always speaks, as it were, to the beloved, the people of God, with words of comfort and hope. But the preaching is something that must discriminate. It must, in a sense, divide sheep and goats in the audience from one another. It comes also, in the words of the catechism, to unbelievers and such as do not sincerely repent. And here we acknowledge that always in the audience, we should expect that there are those who are unbelievers, not only in a mission setting, but also in an established church, because there's hypocrisy and unbelief. This is the way the Scriptures present the audience of those who receive the gospel. And then the word must come to unbelievers and the impenitent in the audience to put away their sins and to come in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. And that kind of preaching is good for all of us because we need daily repentance, daily conversion. We have hypocrisy in our lives and in our hearts. We lack sincerity in repentance and we all need continually to be directed again to Jesus Christ. And so the word must be addressed to believers and unbelievers. A good sermon is not one that's packed with information or one that's interesting or one that's eloquently given, but a good sermon is one that brings sinners to the cross of Jesus Christ. The third thing that this tells us about the preaching is something of the character of the preaching, and that is this, that the preaching is powerful and comes with the authority of the Word of God. When it's biblical, it comes with God's authority and it comes to save. You see that in question 84, when according to the command of Christ, that is when the word that is spoken is biblical, when it's Christ's word, then God uses that to speak, and God uses that powerfully as a testimony, and God uses that as a two-edged sword, a testimony to those who are repentant and do believe, and a testimony against those who are insincere and continue in hypocrisy. And the authority and the power of it is this, that Christ will use the same standard in the judgment day to judge and to acquit. And so the faithful preaching is going to tell you in your conscience either that you do belong, that your sins are forgiven, or that you do not belong, and that the door of the kingdom is closed and your sins are not 
forgiven. What we're talking about here is put very clearly by Jesus in John chapter 20. We should see the connection here in John chapter 20 between verse 21 and verse 23. That's really a section. In Matthew chapter 16 and 18, when Jesus talks about the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom being opened and closed and sins being retained and remitted, Jesus is talking there about the key of Christian discipline. But here in John chapter 20, Jesus is talking not about the key of Christian discipline, but the key of the preaching of the gospel. And you see that in verse 21. Jesus appears to his disciples. He says, Peace be unto you. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. He's talking about the fact that God sent him into the world to be the messenger of the gospel. And he says to his disciples, I'm going to send you now as messengers of the gospel. And then, verse 23 in connection with that, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. The preaching of the gospel in its declaration comes to remit and to retain sins in the mind, in the conscience, in the heart of those who hear. And he sends the gospel, he sends the disciples to declare and to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to all who believe and the retaining of sins and the judgment of God and eternal condemnation to all who do not repent and believe. Now, a great example of this takes place on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where we could say we have the first New Testament sermon. When Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, the people were pricked in their hearts. He had preached the word of God unto them from the Old Testament. He preached Jesus Christ unto them as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He had preached unto them their sin in taking Jesus and by wicked hands crucifying and killing him. And he had preached the judgment of God against the guilt of their sin. And they wanted to know what must we do? And Peter declared unto them in verse 38, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And by that the apostle opened the kingdom in the preaching to those who believed and were repentant. And God remitted sins. God brought these people by his Holy Spirit, under the rule of Jesus Christ. They were brought into the kingdom. And the Lord added to the church that day through the preaching of the apostle. And so this is the first and the main key, the key of the preaching of the gospel. The other key that Jesus Christ has on his keychain is the key of Christian discipline. And Christian discipline is added to the preaching of the gospel to, we might say, confirm what is said by the Word. And we understand this with regard to our children and the discipline of our children. You would like to think that your children would listen to what you say, but they don't always listen to what you say. And so they need added measures of discipline, sometimes physical discipline with a rod. And Christian discipline is added to the preaching of the gospel to enforce 
what is said in words. There are those who don't repent under the preaching of the gospel. They hear the word. There's no application of it to their own situation. And so because they go on in sin and unrepentance and unbelief, the rod of discipline has to be added to the word. And those two work together. The two, uh, about the second key, the key of discipline, there are two questions that need to be answered by us up front so that we understand how discipline works in the church. First is this, to whom is Christian discipline to be administered? And that can be answered with one word, those who are impenitent. Impenitent means not sorry. Not sorry for their sins. The key of Christian discipline is not to be administered to all sinners in the church. It's not simply for those who are overcome by a sin or fall into a sin or struggle against the same sin in their lives. Rather, discipline is for those who persist in their sin without showing signs of genuine repentance. And this tells us that the church should be a welcome place of forgiveness for repentant sinners of every sort. And too often, that's not the way that repentant sinners are dealt with in the church by us. We, when someone falls, gossip. We, when someone falls into the same sin again, won't trust them or unwilling to forgive them. And we have to remember that the church is not a showroom of polished vehicles, but it's a hospital, as it were, for broken sinners. And the great sinners in the church are not those who have fallen into serious public sin and then repented, but the great sinners in the church are, with the scribes and Pharisees, those who live in self-righteousness and hypocrisy, and they gossip, and they persist in these behaviors to the dividing of the church without repentance. So Christian discipline is for the impenitent. The other question that's important for us to answer this morning about Christian discipline is this. What is the purpose of Christian discipline? And I just want to quote from someone who put it this way. Christian discipline is not to remove the sinner from the church but to remove the sin from the sinner. The purpose is not to remove the sinner from the church, but to remove the sin from the sinner. That's what you aim at when you discipline your children. It's not to remove them from your home, but it's to remove sin from their hearts. And so the the purpose of Christian discipline is positive. Sometimes it can result in something negative, excommunication, that's mentioned in the catechism. But even there it has a positive purpose, a positive purpose not only for the protection of the church, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, so sin that isn't dealt with becomes a problem that's more broad in the church, but it's also for the salvation of the sinner. It aims at their repentance. And so the motivation for Christian discipline is love, and the goal is restoration through repentance. There are steps. There are steps that we follow in discipline. Those are uh, pointed to in the Catechism. You can find them in Matthew chapter 18 
And then in First and Second Corinthians, you can look at a commentary on these things in uh, some place or look at the church order and you see what the steps are which are to be followed in Christian discipline. This morning, we're not going to go through and lay out those steps from a biblical point of view, but I want us this morning as we think about Christian discipline to think of these three personal applications. Three things for us to remember with regard to Christian discipline. And the first is this, that Christian discipline is not just the work of elders, but it's something in which we all have a role and a responsibility. That's clear from Matthew chapter 18, where we see that discipline is something that ordinarily begins on a personal level. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. And you see here the great personal responsibility that we have as believers when we see sin and impenitence in the life of another. What is that responsibility? Well, it's first to exercise mutual admonition in the church. And that mutual admonition may be something that gets to the point where you have to confront a brother or sister in the church because they are walking in sin that's destructive to themselves without repentance. And then you don't run to the elders, but you take a witness. You take someone to affirm your perspective with regard to the sin in the life of the brother. And it's only after that that you tell it to the church, or as the catechism says, those who are appointed thereto by the church, that is, the elders. And here, it's important for us to understand that our life together in the church with one another is, in a sense, Christian discipline. And that life with one another in the church in which we admonish one another, in which we, Hebrews 10 says, come together and we gather together so that we may exhort and rebuke and consider one another, that's a preventative to the exercise of discipline by the elders officially. So it is a sense in which we all have a role and a responsibility with regard to the spiritual care of the other members of the body. And that doesn't stop either when we tell it to the church. We have a role when the church exercises discipline publicly instead of gossiping to pray and instead of abandoning somebody to go to them. So that's the first thing for us to remember about Christian discipline. It's not just something for the elders to do, but it's something that we all have a responsibility in in the church, and it's something that we have a responsibility in long before the beginning and the exercise of Christian discipline. And that means as well that we have to be open to others speaking God's Word into our lives, accountable to one another in the church. And that's for the health of the body and 
the different members. The second thing that I think it's important for us to remember personally is that discipline is a process that requires patience and love. It's a process. It's not an easy, hasty measure to rid the church of nuisance people. But rather, it's aimed at repentance, and so it's something that must be done with gentleness. It's something that must be done with a, a commitment to the one who's the object of discipline. It's something that must be done with uh, re- repetition. And you see this in the way that the apostle speaks of his own care for the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in the ministry of the apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica who in some ways were against him and were trying to undermine his ministry, we see Paul's patience, his persistence, and his love. First Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, verse 7, We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. This is like a mother nursing a baby. He says, this is how I was with you who were new converts in the gospel like babies. I was gentle. And then verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. This is something that Paul was committed to. This is something that Paul was willing to lay his own life down for. And then in verse 10, ye are witnesses in God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. And you see the patience of Paul, though he rebuked as a father and exhorted as a father and encouraged as a father, he did this with the tenderness of a mother holding a child. That's important for us to remember in the church, important for office bearers to remember in their work, but important for all of us to remember with regard to the work of Christian discipline. We mustn't become impatient in this work. If you, for example, do what Jesus says you should do in Matthew chapter 18 and bring this to the elders of the church, you mustn't expect them to jump in immediately and censure somebody But there's a work that the elders then will do carefully in their own investigation and admonition, and you need to trust them. A typical discipline case in the church from the time of the offense till the time of excommunication, if there are no signs of repentance, can take as much as two years. It's work that's carefully done in the church with patience and the goal of repentance. And then the third thing for us to remember is that discipline is not something for us to exercise privately, independent of the church. Yes, we have a responsibility towards the other members of the church to exhort and to admonish and even to confront them with their sin or to bring witnesses to them. But we ourselves don't have the right, and in fact it would be a sin for us, to cut off the other members of the church because we see them as sinners. Then we are not helping them. And then we are sinning against the unity of the body. Now, I bring this up 
because in our own history, this has been permitted in the churches and this has been highlighted recently that one member or a group of members decide that others in the church are not, as it were, up to snuff. And they alienate themselves from them and cut them off. And that's sin against the unity of the body. And it's important for us to see then in the second place this morning to whom the keys of Christian discipline and the preaching of the gospel are entrusted. The keys are Christ's keys. He is the door, and no man comes in but by him. So he's the one ultimately who opens and closes the kingdom, but he gives the keys of the kingdom to men to use in his behalf. And that's the idea in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. Tell it to the church, and if he neglect to hear them, then he shall be closed out of the kingdom. The church holds the keys. Now, when we say the church, we don't mean that telling it to the church means a person stands up in front of the congregation and tells everybody else what has been done. No, it means it's told to the elders of the church, those who are appointed by the church to rule and to exercise these keys. The church holds the keys of the kingdom, preaching and discipline. Now, there is a resistance to that, and certainly that can be seen in churches that have departed from the Word of God in this area, and sin and repentance are not preached, and discipline is not exercised. But it's important for us this morning not to look around at others, but to look at ourselves. There's the same resistance in our hearts and in our church to discipline and to the opening and the closing of the kingdom in the preaching. Just think about this. When the preaching comes and, as it were, steps on your toes, confronts your sin, addresses something in your marriage, helps you to see that your priorities in life are wrong, addresses sinful behavior in the way that you live in relationships, in the church or in your home. The door, as it were, is closing in your face. What do you do? Well, hearts have a resistance to that, don't we? We want to look at the messenger, the minister, or the elders and discredit what they're saying, attack their character, point to their faults, dismiss these things as merely their opinion. Who are they? And perhaps we even try to find hypocrisy in their life or say that the manner in which we've been addressed by them was not gentle enough and we find all kinds of ways to resist the closing of the door of the kingdom. Or perhaps we think something like this, well, that's far too much to put in the hands of a few, a few men. And you see this attitude in the church, especially when you look at the way that people often respond to discipline or even to the preaching and that is, by removing themselves, it's very easy to get out from under discipline or out from under the Word of God by taking flight from the church, finding a place where no questions are asked. 
And there's a resistance then, isn't there, to the keys. And so we need to go back to biblical principles, and there are two of them here. The first is the principle that God uses weak means. God uses weak means. We realize that in our Christian homes. We realize that as husbands. We realize that as wives with regard to husbands to whom we are to submit. We realize that with regard to our children. We realize that when we look at our parents. God uses weak means. And just as our children have the calling, in the words of the Catechism, to bear with the weaknesses and infirmities, to honor and to submit, so it is in the church also. God has appointed men. We have the treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels. Or we have men appointed in the church who, like Timothy, are young and inexperienced. And Paul has to say to him, let no man despise thy youth, but be an example of the believers. And God commits rule in the church to people like David, Peter, Paul, Jacob, Adam, and we can think of all the flaws in their character and personality. And yet, he says, I give to you the keys. And that brings us to the second important principle for us to remember, and it's this, that the rule of the elders in the church is an actual rule. They have the right to rule. There's an authority in the word that is proclaimed. Christ says to the apostles and to the church, I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And this is the exhortation that comes to elders in the church in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where Paul meets the elders of Ephesus on the island of Miletus. He says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. They are to take heed, to watch the flock. And then he goes on to talk about wolves who will enter in. And these men are given the charge by the apostle and the charge by Christ himself to pay attention, to oversee, to exercise rule in the church. There's an actual rule and authority given in the church to office bearers. And that means that we all have an obligation to submit ourselves to the office bearers in the church. No, they're not above criticism. And that's why it's important for us to recognize the biblical principle that there should be a plurality of office bearers in the church, in the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. But even if they can be wrong, and they can, they still have the keys. And the question of submission does not hang on their competence or their quality, their qualifications, but on this, to whom has Christ given the keys of the kingdom? And so we confess Will you submit to church government 
And in case you should become delinquent to church discipline, and we say, yes, I will. To look at the elders and the office bearers in the church this way, not from the point of view of their weaknesses, and therefore I can discredit them, but these are representatives of Christ to whom he has given the kingdom keys. Now, the two things here that are important for elders and office bearers to keep in mind, and the first is this, that the keys must be exercised with great care because what we are saying when we use the key of discipline is this. You are an unbeliever. You are not a Christian. That's the judgment that we make when we use the key of discipline. A couple of weeks ago, I preached on the disciples forbidding the infants to come to Jesus. And you remember the twofold response of Jesus. First, he was angry with them. And then he said, Suffer the little children to come to me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. We must be careful not to shut out of the kingdom those who belong. So they must be used with with great caution. But at the same time, we must not be hesitant, so hesitant to use the kingdom keys that we, that we never shut out from the kingdom. Jesus Christ is saying to elders in your care of the church, you need these keys. You need to exercise discipline in the church. You need the gospel which preaches as a, which comes as a two-edged sword so that there are those who are turned away from the kingdom by that gospel preached. And he's saying, don't be afraid to, to preach the word faithfully. Don't be afraid to use the key of Christian discipline against those who walk continually and impenitently in, in sin. This way you guard the church. This way you bring sinners to repentance and to Jesus Christ. And so use the keys with wisdom and patience, but also confidence. And be faithful in admonition in the church. This morning, as we close, it's important that each of us answer this question. What are the keys saying to me? What are they saying to me today? Is the kingdom opened to me, or is the kingdom closed to me? Do the keys of the kingdom declare to me that I have no part in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, or do the keys declare to me that Christ receives me into his kingdom and fellowship? Now, with regard to discipline... There's a sense in which the answer is rather clear. When a member is under discipline, Christ is saying, you must repent, and if not, you are outside the kingdom, exposed to the judgment and eternal condemnation of God. And I can thankfully report this morning that there are presently no ongoing discipline cases in the congregation here, but that doesn't mean that we're all clear, does it? Because there's another key, and that's the key 
of the preaching of the gospel, and it speaks to your conscience. It addresses your life, your hypocrisy, and it asks, are you repentant? Or do you have sin in your life that you're living in, and you know it, and it's addressed, and you're hard-hearted to the gospel? It calls you to believe in Jesus Christ. It tells you that if you don't believe, you're outside the kingdom. And so you must ask yourself this morning, what is the gospel's testimony to me? Do I repent? Do I believe in Jesus Christ? Or is my Christianity, my religious practice, mere hypocrisy? And I live in unbelief. And I live persistently in sin with impenitence. And this is a question that you must answer before God. It's not a question for others to answer for you. So what does the Word say to you? It says, Put away your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Come to him in faith and repentance. And when you do, the promise is that the kingdom is opened, that your sins are remitted and forgiven, that you have the right of entrance, and that you have the privilege of the presence of the King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we're thankful for the opening of the kingdom and the good news from the shepherd and the king, Jesus Christ, that in him and through him there's full forgiveness and pardon for all who come in repentance and faith. We pray, Lord, that the word with its power will work that in our hearts so that we may come in confidence to our Savior. Hear us in mercy, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.